0: Welcome to TJH, your go-to podcast for all things journeying home to yourself. I'm your host, Haley Curtis, Jean Keys and Women's Transformation Guide, here to encourage and usher you into remembering who you are by peeling back the veil on all things shadow work, self-love, self-worth, relationships, Jean Keys, breakthrough, awakening, and so much more. One thing I know to be true about you is that you are utterly magnificent. And here at the Journey Home Podcast, I will be walking hand in hand with you as you discover and remember your magic. Let the voyage begin. Welcome back to the Journey Home Podcast. I am just utterly delighted that you have returned for episode two. Just. Ugh. Just the thought for me, the thinking of you actually listening to episode one and then wanting to come back to listen to episode two just makes my heart want to melt. So thank you so much for being here. And in today's episode, we're going to be picking up from where we left off, where I shared my story from birth to 21. But before we do, I just want to take a moment to say again that these first few episodes, a they're not a depiction of what to expect in this podcast. Yes, I'm going to be sharing about my life throughout the episodes and past experiences and childhood and how that informs some of the concepts and the topics about transformation and awakening that we're going to be talking about, but definitely not in the way that I am in these first few episodes You know, just like I said in the last episode, I felt like we really needed to start at the beginning and that sharing some context on my life and my upbringing and my own journey home to myself, I just felt like that was a really important place to begin. And so before we dive into all of the juicy layers of inner work and breakthrough and transformation and the gene keys and just relationships and all of the incredible things we're going to be talking about on the Journey Home podcast, Um, I first want to just finish telling my story, my story back home to me. And I actually want to backtrack a year or so from where the last episode ended, because I forgot to share some important parts of my journey with you. And, you know, I spoke quite a bit in the last episode about how I was brought up to believe that my looks were my worth, um, which projected me on a course of major body image issues. Well, while I was away working on the cruise ships, my emotional eating became quite out of control and in the span of three months the three months that I was away I put on 12 kilos now in pounds that's 26 and a half pounds and that may not sound like a huge amount but on my less than 50 kilogram frame it was a lot and Even to the point where when I got home, dad came to pick me up from the airport and I was walking directly towards him. I was so excited to see my dad. I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen you in three months. Like I've missed you so much and I'm walking towards him and it just felt like he was looking through me and I'm like, what the heck? I'm like, why is dad looking through me? And I actually got right up in front of him and I said, dad, it's me. (laughs) And in classic dad fashion. He just says to me, shit, you've put weight on. (laughs) What a great boost for a gal's confidence, right? And that weight gain really threw my level of perceived worth because, of course, I had all of my warped views around what worth was. And so I took my fucked up views of worthiness and I coupled them with my current career path as a personal trainer and I decided to compete in bodybuilding. What a healthy thing for a gal struggling with body image and worthiness levels to do, right? How perfect. Let's go compare your body to everyone else and just take on an unrealistic Way to look and just make that your core goal in life. And then let's do it with some really restricted eating cycles as well. I mean, how fantastic, right? How bloody fantastic. And man, oh man, did I build my body. I have, um, I have an extreme case of polycystic ovaries syndrome where my estrogen levels were at that stage in my life almost non-existent and I have very high testosterone. And so in other words, it's like I had the hormones of a 17-year-old boy. So I would literally touch a weight, I would pick it up and I would grow muscles. And so I got addicted to lifting weights pretty quickly and that addiction stemmed from a plethora of reasons all of which were unhealthy. There was the fact that I was quote-unquote good at it and I got a shitload of recognition for it and so I was always after things that I was good at you know I I just lived off of the fuel of validation. So anything that I could find that I could get validation for or anything that I could find that I would be praised for, man, I'm like, give me more of that because it was the fuel from which I was living off. And I was also being praised for the way I looked, which felt very comfortable, right? I'd gotten to this point in my life, I was sort of 19, 20 years old and you don't get that same praise that you get when you're a little kid, but then I this was a way that I could get it again. It was like, ah, oh, I can my drug, I can get this drug of of this praise for the way I look by um being really extreme in the way that I build my body to look so that it makes people stop and look at it. It makes people stop and say something about it because it looks different, right? And then there was the safety factor as well. I felt like if I could make myself look super muscly and intimidating, then I could feel safer. In high school, I experienced some bullying from some older girls and they would follow me around and threaten that they were going to bash me up and um, hurt me a couple of times. And that really fueled a lot of this um, muscle building Um, and also like connected in with all of my fears that I was raised with. I just thought, well, maybe if I look super strong and if I look like I could hurt someone, maybe that will stop someone from trying to hurt me. Then there was also the recognition that I was craving from my dad because he had never been interested in anything I'd done before. He'd never come to my athletics meets. He'd never come to my dance concerts, but bodybuilding, man, he would be there he would come to my shows he would be so proud of me Um, the show that I had booked in to do my first show this was before my dad passed away um, he was the first person that was like put me down for two tickets and he uh, you know he loved talking about the gym and it was something that he really enjoyed as well and I felt like it was a way that we connected and so so many unhealthy reasons as to why I really threw myself into that world and so I trained really hard um and booked myself in for bodybuilding shows and in the lead up to one of my shows in 2010 I badly tore my hamstring after deadlifting about 120 kilos followed up by practicing my acrobatic routine because I was competing in the fitness category where you do like the full like aerobic all the flips and the things and you do the posing oh my gosh so hilarious to think back to that time of my life um And that was my first hiatus from the gym when I tore my hamstring. And it was the first time I fully recognized just how fucked up my body image was. And it had gotten to a point of body dysmorphia and I really wasn't coping. And not only was I starting to really suffer with body dysmorphia, but my binge eating had also gotten out of control. Reflecting back now, I can see how I suffered with binge eating from around the age of six or seven, where I would get home from school and I would sneak packets of chips from the pantry and I would eat them while I watched TV. And this was something I picked up from my dad, who I would watch every single night sitting in front of the TV, polishing off whole packets of biscuits, whole packets of chips to quote unquote wind down from a hard day's work. And the binge eating really came to the surface and I felt like I was losing control. Um, And, you know, part of this was also the extreme dieting that went hand in hand with bodybuilding massively added to bringing this to the surface for me. And, you know, it got to the point where a few times I actually thought I was going to have to call Ambulance or go to hospital because I thought that my stomach was going to rip straight down the middle. That is how much food I would pack in. Um, And that was the first time that I realized that I needed support. And I distinctly remember the moment when I was post binge and I was in the shower on the floor crying my eyes out trying to make myself throw up but I have this weird thing with throwing up where I've just never been able to I've thrown up three times in my entire life and that's only been when I've been super super drunk I've never been able to throw up without that happening but I was on the floor in the shower like on all fours trying to make myself throw up and I was crying so much not because of the pain or anything like that. I was crying so much because I was so frustrated and angry that I couldn't make myself throw up. And that moment, realizing that I was more upset about not being able to throw up than I was about anything else, was the moment I knew that it was time for me to see a psychologist. I was like, okay, Haley, that's fucked up. That's... There's a disconnect here. Something is is just not happening here, and so I remember, like I went to, I'd spoken to my mum a little bit about it. Um, that I felt like I needed to see a psychologist, and we have a thing in WA where you can get a mental health plan and you can get six free sessions. And um, I had never had mental health issues. Well, I had, as you saw in the last episode, I had been suffering with anxiety my whole life, but no one had ever been able to pinpoint it. I thought I'd never suffered with mental health issues. And I know it threw my mum a little bit off kilter too, because I was her happy child. Haley's the happy one. Haley is the one where everything's just okay all of the time. And even sitting in the doctor's office when I was talking to my GP about, what was going on and I broke down like I felt so uncomfortable even sharing that and I I could feel mum's energy sitting next to me and I I felt like I was disappointing her and I felt like she didn't quite understand what I was going through and that was just my own projection right she um she definitely was supportive of me but that was my own discomfort with myself that I was like ah who is who am i if i'm feeling like this because i'm meant to be haley the happy one haley the one that just cruises and all of a sudden that wasn't happening all right and so i ended up going and and seeking that professional help and that was um That was really the first time that I began starting to journey back home, but I didn't really know it. I hadn't really put any of those pieces together. It was more just a, well, I'm really struggling and this is just what you do when you're struggling. You go and get help. But it never had really clicked in for me. Um, With that being the beginning of my journey, it was more just a hump in the road for me at that time. So now that we've backtracked, a little, let's fast forward again to 2011. I'm 21 years old. I've just headed off on a trip to Bali with my two sisters that dad had bought us for Christmas. We were going on an early Christmas present. It was the end of November and dad was meant to see us off at the airport, but he didn't show. However, that didn't seem to be too suspicious because dad often wouldn't show or he'd often say he'd be somewhere and then he wouldn't and then he'd call later and be like oh sorry I got caught up with this so we were just like oh he just must be busy at work all good we got on the plane um, and we headed straight to Bali and as soon as we got to our hotel we just dumped our bags and we went out for the whole day we went out exploring we got a few drinks we got our hair braided and we got back to the hotel in the evening ...and had a shitload of missed calls and messages from home asking us to call them. And my older sister, she um, called her then-husband... ...and I watched her talking to him on the phone... ...and my stomach began to sink as I saw her face shift... ...and saw her starting to drop to her knees... Dad had had a heart attack that morning on his walk and was unresponsive in hospital. And at the stage that we had gotten on the plane, Dad had had one heart attack and had been brought back to life by the paramedics on the way to the hospital. And he was sitting up in bed and seemed to be okay at the hospital so our stepmom didn't call us thinking that he'd be okay and they were like oh just let the girls go and enjoy their holiday that that he bought for them like he wants them to have a good time like let's not ruin it for them we don't need to but shortly after we had gotten on the plane dad went into a major cardiac arrest and After working on him for 45 minutes, they were able to get him onto life support, um, but he remained unresponsive from there. Getting home from Bali was a very traumatic experience, Um, but we managed to get home the next morning, and we went straight to the hospital, to the intensive care unit where Dad was, and seeing Dad hooked up to life support was heartbreaking heartbreaking this was a man that I had always seen as invincible and he saw himself as invincible and he was the one person in the world that I felt would always be there no matter what you know in my eyes nothing could take down my dad but there he was with a machine breathing for him And a machine pumping his heart. And I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't wake him up. There was nothing that I could do. And I remember at that time feeling so let down by all of the movies and the TV shows that I'd watched in the past where people would be on life support and a miracle would happen and then they'd wake up. And I felt my heart ushering me into coming to terms with the fact that it doesn't often happen like that in real life and that the chances were that this wasn't going to be one of those stories where they wake up. This wasn't going to be one of those stories um, that makes it to the movies and the TV shows where everything's happily ever after. So my dad had always drilled into us from a young age that if he was to ever be put on life support and that there was no hope of him returning to full health that he wanted that life support turned off. And that first day when we got home, there was still hope. Um, But after 24 hours of being on dialysis, his blood thinned too much to the point that it seeped out into his brain and he became brain dead. And we got the call early that morning that it had happened. And in that moment, my entire worldview, my safety net, my identity, just everything crumbled. I just can still feel that feeling of it just like we're just it feels like your whole stomach's been ripped out your heart's been ripped out it was like my heart was being ripped from my chest at the same time as having a massive adrenaline rush and we were like we just had to jump in the car and head back to the hospital now I'm probably gonna cry quite a bit through this part but um I'm just going to keep going um, because I really want to share this with you. You know, death is such an important part of life and I don't want it to be a taboo subject on this podcast. And I don't feel like it's a taboo subject. And even though you're going to hear a lot of my pain and my suffering as I explain this, it's also part of the beauty of life and um, part of the celebration of life as well. So um, turning off dad's life support was the hardest thing that I have ever experienced. In the room there was my sisters, my mum, my stepdad, my stepmum, my auntie, my uncle and my nana. And watching my nana, who was a very hard woman, um, watching her say goodbye to her little boy, that broke something in me. And then as they turned the machine off, I laid my head on my dad's chest and I listened as his heart slowly stopped beating and prying myself away from him felt like a hundred years in a single moment. I just remember wanting to drag that moment out forever because I knew as soon as I stood up, as soon as I took my hands off of him, as soon as I walked out of that room that life would never be the same. And then the most difficult part of all came, and that was um as I left the room, my little sister, sorry, give me a moment. <laughs> my little sister, who was seventeen years old at the time and was the closest of all of us to our dad. He was just everything. As she ran and clinged to him. And I sat in the hallway of the hospital. Listening to the sounds of her just wailing. And in that moment I was deeply grieving. Not just for myself. But even more so for her. For her, my baby sister, who had just lost her everything. And the sound of her cries, it has haunted me for the last 12 years. And what was to come um, was, yeah, equal parts... My own grief and witnessing hers, I think, has been the most heartbreaking part of all of it for me. And you know, what followed from there was nothing short of a blur. You know, as soon as the grief hit, I remember feeling like just so annoyed with life that it hadn't prepared me for this like I realized that there was not a single thing that could prepare you for that level of pain for that level of loss um and it just it really shook up my worldview it shook up just life You know, I'd lived my whole life in my bubble, in my little Haley world of sunshine and rainbows. And it was just ripped the fuck apart. And, you know, the next week or so from there was just full of funeral preparations and trying to get through the day and... Man, it is so messed up that when you lose someone who is such a deep love in your life that the first thing you have to do is like prepare all of these things. Like, man, we need to come up with a better system. Um, To add to to the pain that I was experiencing in in that first sort of week since dad's passing, when we were sitting there with the funeral director, um, dad's will got put out onto the table Um, And after 21 years of having this man provide so fully and so beautifully for me, he provided too much for me. You know, I had a credit card in my name that was connected to his account and I um, willy-nilly would use that. You know, I just relied so heavily on him, like unconsciously and consciously. And I read in his own handwriting that he was leaving every single thing that he owned, every single piece of money that he had created over his lifetime, he was leaving it all to his wife of seven weeks. And my sisters and I weren't even mentioned in his will. And I'm likely going to talk about that more in future episodes relating to financial wounding and things like that. But that moment of seeing that in his handwriting was probably the biggest cut to my level of self-worth that I've ever experienced, Um, especially when you add it to my whole childhood of just wanting to be seen and to be valued and it just felt like the level of love and connection that i had just wasn't being met and that's not true um i know that my dad loved us so much and he did so much for us and so much of what he would do in life, um, he did it for his girls. But that cut me very, very deeply, um and has been a major part of um the aspects of like the father wounding that I have that I have um been piecing back together um through my journey home to myself. Oh gosh, I miss my dad so much, so much, and even though he had his shortcomings, I loved him so deeply, and I'm saddened that I never got to say goodbye, and I'm even more saddened that he never got to witness who I've become. You know, he never got to witness the true me and I often think about the incredible conversations that we could have now or I think about how now that I'm so firmly planted in who I am, I would have been able to tell him how much I loved him because for the last couple of years um, of his life, I so badly every time that he dropped me back home or every time that He'd call me when I was saying goodbye. My heart wanted to say I love you, but I could never do it. And that was a reflection of the level of worthiness that I felt because obviously I was I was scared to tell him that because something deep in me was worried that he couldn't tell me back. Of course he could. Of course he couldn't. Every birthday card and every Christmas card, he'd always write in there how much he loved us. But he struggled to share his feelings. Um, But I'd always hear my younger sister, she'd always say, I love you, Dad. And he'd say, I love you, sweetheart. And I remember being really jealous of her ability to just tell him how she felt. She had a really special bond with him. So I'm very sad that I never got to do that. Um but of course, um, at the very same time I also believe that um it's it's my relationship with my dad didn't end the day that he died and I still get to be in those conversations with him now and oh, there's there's life after life and um you know that brings me a lot of comfort, but at the same time, it's still difficult to know all of the things that you didn't get to say in that face-to-face time in this lifetime. And I also, I harbored a lot of guilt after dad's death because he was um, struggling with his weight and he had always struggled with his weight and he had no blood pressure and heart issues. He had his first, um, he had an angina attack when I was 13 years old and had been on heart medication since then. And he'd had, um, I'm pretty sure he had a stint put in, stent, whatever it's called, when I was about 13. He had a heart attack. I remember being thirteen years old, I was watching T V. It was the logies. Anyone that's an Aussie, you'll know what the logies are. Watching that with my mum and dad kept coming out and sitting on the couch and like rubbing his arm and he was like, Oh, I just don't feel quite right and he'd go back to bed and he'd get back up again, he'd be like, Oh, just not feeling right. Then I went to bed. Turned out that he then ended up getting up and was in a lot of pain, so he drove himself to the hospital and he was having a heart attack. (laughs) was driving himself to the hospital at that time and we found out in the morning and went in and he was sitting up in bed at the hospital attached to all the things and um he was like oh your dad's fine oh he's all good oh I see your dad has a heart attack he drives himself to the hospital like that was just who he was which of course added to the shock for when it took him but anyway He'd been suffering with struggling with his weight and he knew like, okay, I need to, I really need to get this together. I need to lose some weight. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to hit some issues. And so he, um, he decided a few months before he ended up passing that he wanted to get fit and healthy. And so I went and moved in with him for, um, it was meant, I was meant to go, I think for two weeks, but I ended up only going for a week and I went to help him get on track with his food and his exercise because at that time that's what I did for a living and we would get up and we would go for a walk in the morning together and then I would like help him with what to eat for breakfast and for dinner and his snacks and helping him with that and um, and I was meant to stay longer but then something came up where it was just my own selfishness that I ended up not staying for the full time and Oh man I held on to a lot of guilt from that for a long time believing that if I had been less selfish that I could have saved him but as I've journeyed home to myself I've been able to forgive myself and and to let go of that knowing it you know I wasn't going to heal 55 years of health issues in two weeks if I stayed an extra seven days, you know, Um, but that was a very hard thing that I had to get through as well. And I feel very lucky in the fact that I dream of my dad all of the time. He always comes to me in my dreams. Um, for many years, the dreams were all based around a lot of anxiety of, of there'd be dreams where he'd be getting healthy, but then I'd know that he was going to die. And so I was all stressed about it. And, but for many years now, there've always been dreams filled with so much love. It's like I dream of dad coming into, he'll come into my dreams and it will be the relationship that I know that we'd have now. And really interestingly dad is the only person who actually completely looks like him in my dreams I don't know about you but when I dream about people so say Bevan's in my dream or my sisters are in my dream or a friend it's them but it's not fully them like I know it's them in the dream but they don't necessarily look like them whenever I dream of my dad it looks exactly like him so there I was 21 years old, and my life had fallen out from underneath me. And it could have easily been a time where I sank into a deep depression, but instead, it sparked something in me. Losing dad made me start to question life. What was life about? Why are we here? Where do we go when we die? What's the purpose of life? You see, I'd never really stopped to ask those questions before. My dad was a hardcore atheist. And so that was how I was raised, even in primary school. I wasn't allowed to do scripture every week back then in primary school. The scripture teacher would come in to teach the kids about God and the stories of Jesus. And I would have to sit out in the wet area with the Muslim kids. I always became such good friends with the Muslim kids at school because we'd sit out there and we'd chat and we'd do coloring in together while everyone else was inside learning about God, learning about Jesus. And My dad believed that you live, it's purposeless, then you die, you get buried in the ground, blackness, darkness, nothing. And I adopted those beliefs without ever questioning them. And I used to see any type of spirituality as weak. I saw it as pathetic And my cousins were really strong Christians growing up. And I distinctly remember being like seven years old and making them cry. Because I like, I I literally had one of my cousins pinned up against a wall at like seven years old, telling him how stupid he was for believing in some God in the sky. And he was just crying. Like, I was a hardcore atheist at seven years old. And this just shows the environment in which you're raised and the dogma that you're raised with you just don't know what you don't know and so what you're taught at that age is just what you can take on and it was as if dad dying tore the veil away from my eyes and gave me the opportunity to start exploring spirituality And over the next nine months, my heart began cracking open, and I started thinking in a more open-minded way than I ever had before. And this was truly where my journey of self-discovery began. I wasn't on the hunt for answers about myself yet, though, but rather just answers about life. What was life about? Why the fuck are we here? And the conclusion that I came to pretty quickly after sort of going on my little expedition was that we came here to love, to experience love, to love one another. And through the realization of love, I began my journey of softening. And I love reflecting back on this because Richard Rudd, the author of The Gene Keys, which we'll be talking a lot about on this podcast, describes transformation and awakening as a series of softenings. And that really is what it's been for me. And that softening was catalyzed by the loss of my dad because he represented my hard exterior Coating. He was like this wall of defense that I just carried around myself and around my heart. And letting go of him initiated me onto my path of awakening. And it took me a long time to even be comfortable to say that out loud because even right back then, before I'd even (laughs) understood what was happening, I knew really quickly I knew that sort of dad dying had released me to be able to soar and I felt so guilty for that and gosh I would I felt like oh my gosh I could never say that out loud I could never have my sisters hear me say that I could never have anyone hear me say that because does that mean that I wanted him to die of course I didn't But it's what happened and it was his destined path. And it was the domino that sent me back home. It was the domino that awakened me to life. And for that I am so grateful to him. So grateful to him. And it's a weird feeling to be grateful for losing one of the people that you loved most in this world and it feels weird to say it out loud but I know that you understand what I'm trying to say and so this entire journey of questioning life coincided with my glorious husband Bevan coming into my life which was also intertwined with my faith journey. So two of my best friends growing up, who were twins, were the two most phenomenal people I knew, the two most loving, kindest people I knew. And they lived these lives that I would look at and I think, oh, like when I grow up, I want to be like them. (laughs) They just inspired me so much. But they did it all in the name of Christianity. And here was me looking at their life being like, oh, they are just the ultimate humans. Yet I was like, but I'm an atheist, but they do it because they're Christians. And it just really started to... um it started to make me question even more. You know, my atheist self was never interested in exploring that. You know, I'd been friends with these beautiful girls for years and years and years. And I just, it was like I was closed off to even that part of who they were. But once I began questioning life, they were the people I turned to to help me explore um, because they, had this connection to life after life. They had this connection to a deeper purpose as to why we were here. And I felt very, very drawn to them at this time. And even like when, um, you know, when when dad was in the hospital and we first found out, the first people that I texted was them and asked them to pray. Um, it's really amazing that when life goes into crisis that we – So naturally turned to a spiritual path. And um, as I began turning to them more, we started spending more and more time together, which one weekend um, found me at a friend's farm with them on the outskirts of Perth. And I knew that Bevan would be at the farm that weekend and I was excited to see him. I had known Bevan through the twins for over four years because he'd moved to Perth from New Zealand and um was one of their quote unquote churchy friends as I would call them um and he lived at their house on and off while he was working at the mines he was always hanging out with them, and I just lived through the park from from least my friends and I would spend so much time there throughout my high school years like I would call her their parents my second parents and it ended up being the same for Bevan he really became part of their family and so our paths had crossed um as sort of acquaintances many many times because um you know I was their best friend in the realm of like school friends and stuff and then he was their best friend through the world of the church which was sort of two separate worlds at that time and even though like Bevan and I had met each other a couple of times like the first time we met each other I was 18 and he was coming with us out to the nightclubs for a dance and there was never a physical attraction on either side I saw him as like this really fun guy and like we'd often invite each other to things like birthday parties, you know, I'd invite him to my birthdays, he'd invite me to his but life's circumstances always stopped us from spending much time together and obviously I can see now why it just wasn't our timing yet. Like I always had a boyfriend on the go or like I was in my wild days and he never had an interest in me um, other than friendship back then. But this day at the farm, we arrive in the car, and Bevy just pulls up alongside us in like a, um, like a oh, what are they even called? Like a buggy type thing. And he and he just looks at me straight through the window. He's like, "Oh, Haley, I didn't know you were coming. So great to see you." And in that moment, I got butterflies in my stomach, and I thought to myself, "Why the fuck?" is Bevan Curtis giving me butterflies? What is going on right now? (laughs) And that day we ended up talking the entire time. And the rest is history. Two weeks later after that day, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. And three months after that, he asked me to marry him. And now um, in a few months' time will be our 10-year wedding anniversary. Because we had mutual best friends, it was like we didn't have to get through the phase of making sure each other wasn't a psychopath. Like we'd already, like through the twins, we, I knew that they loved him so much and that they had spent so much time with him and he, vice versa, he knew that about me too. And so it just sort of, we had no walls that we had to get over. It was just like, it was magic, absolute magic. Magic and Bevan played such a vital role in me opening up to spirituality because my entire life I had felt so turned off by anything spiritual because I always felt so judged by people who called themselves Christians or people of faith, like, and also even in the way that the media portrays um, faith, just so judgy and I just learned then you add to that all of the atheist views that I grew up with and I just didn't want anything to do with it and the very first few days of Bevan and I hanging out I said to him I was like so you're a Christian and I've been an atheist my whole life is that going to be an issue for you and he just turned to me in the car I can still see it He turned to me, he's like, who am I to judge where you're at? And he was like, I believe we're all on our own journey. And so who am I to say where your journey should be right now? And those simple words just, I felt my heart crack even further open in that moment. And it was like those words were another catalyst to just peeling back those layers, just the I experienced like true unconditional love in that moment and I experienced in that moment really what it should mean to be a person of faith um, and that really started to crack me and falling in love with Bevan ended up being the very thing that revealed to me that God exists and at the time I saw it as a Christian-based God but now I see it as um, more from a wider context than that. And I'd been having all of these open discussions with my friends about God since dad had died and questioning all of these things. And now I was falling in love with this man of faith. And it was two days into being Bevan's girlfriend. I remember it was a Tuesday night. He had cooked me dinner. The one and only time he has ever cooked me dinner. By the way, our first date he cooked for me, never again. (laughs) False advertising. But he cooked me this beautiful dinner and we had a wonderful night together. And I was driving home when it really dropped for me that I was madly and deeply in love with this man. And as soon as I had that deep revelation of true love, I simultaneously had a question pop into my mind. And I asked myself, I was like, maybe God has always been with me. And in that moment, I was hit With pure light energy through my face that then circulated over and over again throughout my entire body, giving me the feeling of like whooshes of goosebumps, whooshes of goosebumps. And this was a feeling that I knew very well because throughout my whole life no matter whether it was a hot day or a cold day, like it wasn't goosebumps because of the chilly air, like I could get them just as much in 40 degrees as I could in 10 degrees. Whenever I'd witness anything of beauty, like it could be a song or it could be laughter, it could be witnessing people looking at each other, it could be watching someone dance or like playing with my friends, I would get this whoosh of goosebumps. And As I was feeling these rushes through my body and I'm driving at the time and this lasted for a few minutes and I remember thinking like, oh my God, do I have to pull over right now? Like what's happening? As I was experiencing these rushes through my body, I had flashbacks of my entire life of every time I had had those goosebumps and God was saying to me, that was me with you. That was me You were having moments where you were recognising me. That's what the goosebumps were. I've always been with you. (sighs) That was a major moment for me. And it was so special for me because I had come to this experience without anyone telling me what that should look like or without being indoctrinated about what God is or what the feeling should be or how God communicates with you. It was just a raw, real experience. And at that point, I started exploring Christianity in more depth. And I started going to church and I started diving into my own study, which was so profound. Like even My my friends, my Christian friends were like, Haley. out of all of our friends, you were the last person we ever expected (laughs) to be coming to church with us. Because I was just wild and and heavily atheist. Um, And even though I spent the next seven years deeply in my study and my devotion, I never felt comfortable calling myself a Christian. Um, Instead, I'd go by Jesus follower as there was a lot within the church that never sat well with me. There was always bits and pieces that I'm like, nah, like I don't feel like I fit here, but I know I need to be here. Right? I I never felt like, yeah, like at the time I thought I would be devoted to being a Jesus follower forever. But now I can see my Christian walk as being a beautiful stepping stone along my spiritual path. And it was a place, it was a place of refuge that I really needed for my broken heart, my lost soul, my lack of identity, which even at this point I didn't even realize that I was lacking in all of these things, but I, I was and and it was it was my my connection. To God and to Jesus in this way that gave me a safe space, the safe space that I needed to begin exploring the spiritual realms. And I am not anti anything, nor do I hold any spiritual labels. So it's not like I'm saying, oh, I don't believe in Christianity or like, oh, I am this or I am that. I don't hold any spiritual labels and um, my spiritual path is always evolving and winding and Jesus really paved the way for me in that. And my relationship and understanding of who Jesus is in my eyes has shifted and changed over the years um, in the way that I see that. Uh, but me sort of stepping away from those Christian spaces is definitely not me saying, oh, if anyone's a Christian, like they haven't found their way yet. Absolutely not. This is just my story and my path and um, the way in which my own spiritual journey is weaving through my life. But without my connection to Jesus and my initial spiritual awakening, I don't know whether I would have made it through the storms that were to come in my life. Because boy, oh boy, were some storms on the horizon. Now I thought, that I was going to get through the rest of my story in this episode. But we just aren't going to. (laughs) So we're going to be doing part three of Haley's coming home story because we haven't even gotten to the point where I've come home to myself yet. And I really don't want to skim over my health journey and I don't want to skim over um, my coming home. But all of this was a very important um, prequel to that next story. And so I really hope that you join me for the next episode as we dive deeply into um, my years of very, very deep suffering, but my years of deep awakening, my suffering that was nothing but a portal into grace, a portal into remembering who I am and both the hardest and the best thing i've ever been through in my life thank you so much for being here today it was quite an emotional episode and i feel so honored to have shared um those very deep things from my heart to yours thank you so much my friend thank you so much for joining me today it is such an honor to bring my heart directly to your ears The TJH podcast is in her early days, so if you could take a quick moment to leave a rating on Spotify or write a review on Apple Podcasts, I would be extremely grateful. And if you enjoyed the episode, I encourage you to share it with a friend to help spread the Journey Home message far and wide across the globe. I deeply appreciate you, and I will chat to you again very soon.